The best practice for dealing with fraud is to prevent it from ever happening. This is Forensically Speaking, where host Jonathan Marks will help you understand the forensic side of compliance so you can move from detection to prevention in your compliance program. Here's your host, Jonathan Marks. Hello, and welcome to Forensically Speaking. My name is Jonathan Marks, and today we're going to talk about putting the Freud in fraud. Getting inside the mind of a crook. Well, deterring today's white-collar criminal requires an understanding of behavioral footprints and adding new elements to the traditional fraud triangle. I know we've all been using the fraud triangle for many, many years. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but I'm going to show you how we expanded on the fraud triangle, which actually helps us as not only fraud examiners, but also in our anti-fraud efforts. Today's organizations operate in a vastly different world than when the famed criminologist Donald R. Cressy created the three elements to which many call the fraud triangle. The past 60 plus years have brought massive changes through globalization, performance-based pay, and technology. While this evolution has enabled organizations to grow and be more productive, it has also created opportunities for a fraudster to inflict crippling losses on organizations of all types. In fact, today's highest profile fraud cases have cost investors and companies hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And we all read about that in the paper on a regular and frequent basis. So let's talk about now evolving the three elements or what people have called the fraud triangle over these years. So as I mentioned before, you know, Donald Cressy created this concept, the three elements of what we call fraud, you know, back in the 50s and things have evolved since the 50s. So let's talk about specifically what has changed? Email, automated systems, checklist accounting software, and other advancements have made face-to-face interactions fewer and farther between. Many of us are hiding behind emails, facts, similes, and the like. Simultaneously to that, globalization has created distant partnerships and operations, while performance-based pay has shifted the focus from tenure to certain benchmarks, which we all know is problematic. These changes in communications, distance, and motivation have opened up new doors for the white-collar criminal. Tightly designed and properly designed internal controls and monitoring are vital components to fraud deterrence, but they're just simply not enough. Frauds perpetrated amid proper internal controls have shown that organizations simply cannot rely on these methods alone to stop white-collar criminals. Organizations must now be more diligent and aware of the threats both inside and outside the organization. We call this the enterprise or the extended enterprise. The behavioral predictors of white-collar criminals must be better understood if fraud is to be stopped before it happens. So I think there's two components here. Number one is we need to be looking more closely at the perpetrator, and then the other part of it is looking at the crime itself. And that's really a change in mindset where, you know, today and before and historically, we've looked at these three elements, which we call the fraud triangle, as sort of the be-all, end-all when it comes to fraud. I think what we really need to be gravitating more towards is sort of the advanced meta model of fraud, which includes not only the perpetrator, but actually looking at the crime, which includes not only the three elements, you know, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, but also the act of the concealment strategy and the conversion combined, we create the advanced meta model of fraud. When we add in the two additional components to what we call the triangle, and I'll explain that in a second. 
So better understanding fraud through behavior. Yes, it's very, very important. Arrogance can be what it takes to legitimately get ahead. But as witnessed in many of today's more notable frauds, unchecked arrogance enables individuals to see themselves as superior or entitled to the point where policies and laws simply do not apply to them or they think they don't apply to them. You know, competence contributes in two ways. When a person is committing fraud, a person's intelligence and greater understanding of procedures expands on the fraud triangle's opportunity element. But an individual's competence also enables them to create a wall of trust that shields them from suspicion. This competence also goes into effect when, you know, someone is basically able to control the situation and sell whatever they're selling to, you know, the victims. These are the two additional components, arrogance and competence, which I add to what we call the fraud triangle to create the fraud pentagon. Arrogance and competence are well known by former white collar criminals such as Sam Antar. As the CFO of Crazy Eddie, his hands were on the controls of an 18-year fraud that built more than $100 million from investors in the public. It does take one to know one, and Antar's often unsettling candor reveals the dark side of how these additional behavioral elements play in the role in stealing fortunes. So, you know, again, one of the things that I have done is gone back and looked at, you know, certain personality traits, and I am not a licensed psychologist or a, a trained psychologist or sociologist, but I have observed behavior over the years, and I do know that it does play an important role. So how do we sort of get inside the mind of a fraudster? Well, let's take a look at Sam Antar as we portrayed. For Antar, arrogance was not only the foundation of which Crazy Eddie was built, it was the soil on which the seeds of fraud were planted. The Antar clan ruled Crazy Eddie and top management exploited the hopes and dreams of their victims in the pursuit of money and power. You know, from the very beginning, everyone at Crazy Eddie understood that we were out for ourselves. Cash sales were skimmed. You really need to look at this case. It's even though it's a little bit older, it still sends great messages. So, you know, cash sales, we know were skimmed. Payroll was done under the table. Insurance loss claims were exaggerated and customers were routinely cheated or oversold. But that really was only the beginning, you know, as far as this fraudster goes. You know, the height of our arrogance was that most of the people aren't willing to start a public company for the main purpose of defrauding the public. It takes a real amount of arrogance to do that. And, you know, Sam Antar and his cousin, Eddie Antar, certainly did do that. They were very smart. The Klan had brains. Antar's own actions perfectly represent the two ways a fraudster can use competence to steal. He knew the business of accounting and he knew how to socially control the situation to Crazy Eddie's advantage. I started to piece together how we could make a lot more money by going public. I was also the nicest guy you could ever want to work with. So, you know, he started to build that false sense of integrity around himself. And this is really Sam talking. The auditors loved working for them and they were pulling a scam right underneath their noses. As a fraudster, Antar said, I want people to like me. He's told me that over and over again, and trust me as well. Bernie Madoff was smart enough to know that he needed people to trust him and respect him. He also knew to build a wall of false integrity around himself, such as being chairman of NASDAQ and the NASD. So again, when we go back to looking at white-collar crime and the like, and 
we're looking at the characteristics or traits of these individuals. To summarize, it really is white-collar criminals build a false sense of integrity around themselves. They want you to trust them. When you trust them, you lower your level of skepticism. They play against your humanity. They know that if you're nice to them, they'll be nice to you, and they may look away or not ask the tough questions. So that's really a lot of what this is all about. Being arrogant and competent isn't just for white-collar criminals like Antar, by the way. It's what gets common folks into the corner office, too. So these elements or traits are, it's sort of a touchy thing. If you look at a lot of the great leaders out there, you could say that they were very competent and somewhat arrogant, but there was something in there that kind of kept them on the left side and moved Antar to the right side or over the proverbial line of that ethical line. And so really understanding that has become more and more important these days, especially with the changes that I talked about prior. For good or evil, let's talk about for good or evil. While arrogance and competence play a role in the fraudster's propensity to engage in criminal behavior, those elements also propel many of today's successful business leaders to the top of the ladder, as I just said. Similarly, organization in today's business environment require highly creative individuals to innovate products and services and really to motivate others. They have to be somewhat likable and they have to be respective. But a recent Harvard Business Work paper noted how creativity might be a predictor of dishonest behavior. In other words, getting too clever. I think of Andy Fastow when we're talking about this at Enron. Andy truly was the smartest guy in the room. I often wonder if he was just doing what he was told, trying to play the game with the pieces that he was given. He definitely thought outside the box and he used the system to his advantage. And creative people think outside the box all the time and can shuck and jive or change directions quickly. Both of these are characteristics that can lead to rationalizing their deeds and working around controls. And I think that's something that maybe Antar thought about, and I think it's something that maybe Annie Fastow thought about as well. Because if you look at what Fastow did at Enron, a lot of that, you know, really wasn't illegal, but, you know, ethically it crossed over the line. You know, the other thing I want to talk about is compensation structures, because they also present a really difficult conundrum, especially in today's environment. Paper performance can properly incentivize people to perform, but it also motivates them to play with company numbers and to achieve greater personal gain for a multitude of reasons. And it's not only the salespeople, it's the managers and senior leadership that are managing these folks or overseeing these folks as well. You know, if you have a division that's struggling and all of a sudden you need to prop that up for whatever reason because you made public statements or whatever, you know, I have seen in my career where there's been edicts or directives that really came down from the top, you know, talking about, you know, how to incentivize, you know, sales folks to really push the envelope. You know, that's not something that they come up with. That's something that somebody else comes up with. You know, with the double-edged nature of these traits, knowing who to watch and who to promote lies with a comprehensive solution, you know, and what is that solution? You know, is it one or is it many? So the solution that I think is really one that should be looked at is a more effective fraud management program by integrating nuanced, complete behavioral checks with actionable controls. So while we've tried to capture the psychological framework of today's fraudster 
by expanding on the Cressy's fraud triangle into the fraud Pentagon. The Pentagon, you know, I think provides more accurate and a complete set of fingerprints for today's fraudster, adding these additional behavioral elements of competence and arrogance to opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. You know, and some have argued, well, you know, they could be combined with opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. You know, I don't think so. I think they need to be looked at separately because, you know, when you really look at arrogance and you really look at competence and what they're about, I think they have to be looked at individually and in the aggregate. And I think if you bury them within opportunity, pressure, and rationalization, I think you can lose things there. So, you know, seeing fraud, deterrence, or prevention, which I don't like saying, you know, through the Pentagon supports internal controls and enable organizations to create a more fraud-resistant culture through two root structures, environmental opportunities and individual mindsets. By utilizing all five elements, you're going to be more able to identify potential risks beyond those legitimate individuals who simply have arrogance and competence as part of their persona. And again, it might not be fraud. You know, it might be what gets that individual, you know, higher up, you know, within the organization or into the corner office. But it's certainly something you should be aware of. And it's certainly something that should be monitored. Now that we're at this point in the podcast, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was what can you do? Things that I would recommend is start with a hands-on cultural assessment, which determines the ethical pulse of the organization, whatever that might look at. There are different methods and different ways of looking at this. I have one that I've developed. I'm sure that there's probably one that you feel comfortable with, but really get your hands on what the culture is. And there may be cultures and subcultures, but doing a cultural assessment, I think, is important. Boards and executive teams must know and make known that there is a zero fraud tolerance within the organization. And that starts with not only tone, but conduct at the top. So it's something that is very, does not resonate throughout the organization. It could lead to problems. So in a lot of organizations, it kind of stops, you know, at the top level and it doesn't resonate or cut down or through both people call it mood in the middle or buzz at the bottom. But, you know, it's really one of those things where tone from the top and conduct from the top is really, really important. One of the things that I like to try to do is work closely with boards and executives and other personnel to verify what type of tone and what type of conduct is said, heard, and really understood. I think if you're going to do your own internal assessment, those are things that you should do as well. And make periodic checks to monitor the pressure points and values that affect individual behaviors. Monitoring has become a really big thing these days. There's a difference between what we've done before and what we need to do now. So really putting in a good monitoring program really could help. So just to wrap up, I think we talked about a bunch of different things, putting the Freud in fraud, pay more attention to the behavioral part, pay more attention to the human element. That's really what I'm driving at and what I've driven at, at years, for years. I mean, the numbers really do tell a story or they can tell a story, but sometimes we ignore the human element. This, I think, gets you there. I think if you look at the fraud Pentagon and you look at those elements again, competence, arrogance, pressure, opportunity, and rationalization, which builds off of Cressy's work, not taking anything away from Cressy, but I think if you consider those other two elements and you marry them with the triangle of fraud action, which is the act of concealment strategy and the conversion piece, which combined create the advanced meta model of fraud, I think you could do one of two things. Number one is I think you'll be able to understand fraud a lot better. I think you'll also be able to build more effective internal controls. My name's Jonathan Marks, and this is Forensically Speaking. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Forensically Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and help us spread the word by leaving a review. 